take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, as we have the privilege of continuing our exposition of this gospel. Our passage this morning is Luke 10, verses 21 through 24. Just so we have a little context, I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. So follow along with me beginning there. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let us pray. Father God, we are delighted as your children to gather, Lord, in your name, in your spirit, to give you a sacrifice of praise, to bring honor and glory to you, Lord, to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, as we have the privilege to to explore this text this morning, guide our minds and hearts. I confess to you, Father, that There are some things presented here that are deep things of doctrine, matters of your sovereignty in salvation. In our flesh, Lord, in our humanness, it is is hard to consider these things, and yet, Lord, they are no less true. Give us, Lord, understanding. Let us understand that our assurance of salvation is not in anything of us, not in any way that we somehow maintain or or earn your favor. Our assurance of salvation is based first and foremost in the fact that you are a God who saves sinners, who calls us out of darkness and into the light, a God who sets his affections on us from eternity past and who brings our salvation about in your time, according to your purpose, for your glory. Guide us now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, it's always a blessing when we come to the text of Scripture to come to the prayers of Jesus. And I think it's such a blessing to come to the prayers of Jesus that are recorded for us in the Gospels because they are an encouragement to us, especially when 
we have a hard time praying. You probably be surprised to know this, but as your pastor, I would want you to know there are times when I have a hard time praying. Times when I rush through prayer to get on to my tasks. Times when I struggle to keep my attention in prayer. Times when, honestly, I don't feel like praying, but I know I need to. And I guess that's one of the reasons why the prayers of Jesus are always so encouraging to me because I know there's a Savior who even this moment lives to make intercession for me. A Savior who who prays diligently even when I struggle. A Savior who, who is at work in His Holy Spirit to bring me back to those times when prayer is my refuge when prayer is that time where I'm able to commune deeply with Christ, He is a Savior that is patient with me and giving to me, even when I am inconsistent and fall short. As we go to this prayer of Jesus, though, this morning, we're going to see Him lifting up His heart to the Father, and we're going to we're going to learn some things, and that's, that's really what the focus of this passage and even the sermon is this morning. As we look at this divine prayer of thankfulness, the focus here is not so much on something we're supposed to do as a result of these things. It's really on things that we're supposed to know and understand as a result of hearing Christ pray. And as I noted in my own prayer, We're going to spend time this morning talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation, which to some people can be controversial. But in the whole testimony of Scripture that we find is a clear teaching of God. So let's go ahead. There's four different points I want to cover this morning as we look through this passage. First, let's just look at the joy of the divine relationship. The joy of the divine relationship. Look there at verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You know, right at the beginning of this brief prayer, we see again a beautiful affirmation of the unique relationship between the members of the Godhead. Just in one half of one verse, we have a mention of the Holy Spirit, we have Christ the Son offering a prayer, and that prayer is going up to Father, Lord of heaven and earth. After welcoming back the 72 disciples from their ministry in the surrounding towns, Jesus is basically rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, and he is moved to offer a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to his Father. Now, if we plow down into that, that's exactly what praise is. Praise is a pronounced confession of of thankfulness for God's person, God's character, God's design of creation, God's sovereign direction of all things. That's what praise is. And that is why we have a God who is worthy of praise. And we want to understand that as Jesus offers this, this prayer, this act of praise is reciprocal. It springs from Christ's identity as the very Son of God, as the perfect manifestation of God among men. Regarding this point, commentators have noted that this is where Luke has a great deal in common with the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John records for us some of the most extensive amount of material on the deity of Christ, on his oneness with the Father, 
on the doctrine that we call the doctrine of the Trinity. John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And John 1, 14, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld Him, the glory of the Father. John 5, 18, for this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. And then in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. That is specifically from the mouth of Christ himself. And references from that gospel could go on and on and on. And here we see Luke sounding that same point. Even as Jesus is praying, there's this, there's this beautiful rejoicing in the members of the Trinity as Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, offers up a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to the Father for what has been accomplished. All of this points us back to God's triune nature. As our own confession says, the Second London Confession, in chapter 2, article 3, this divine and infinite being of God consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. So what we see here, brothers and sisters, is all three persons of the Godhead active. Though completely equal in essence and divinity and nature, they have different roles borne out and reflected in their relationship with one another. God the Father designs, purposes, and reigns in sovereign perfection with perfect justice, benevolence, and wisdom. He reigns with absolute power. God the Son then submits perfectly to the Father's will by actively accomplishing all that the Father has purposed. As the perfect and ultimate and full revelation of God in creation, He has been given all authority to complete His Father's will, thus glorifying the Father as well as being glorified Himself through His manifestation of the Father. And thirdly, we see that God the Spirit submits perfectly to the Father's and the Son's wills as the transforming and empowering Spirit of the Godhead. He actively accomplishes the purposes of the Father and Son by applying and bringing to fruition the completed work of the Son. So the Godhead is one, yet three, in eternal perfection and infinite holiness. They relate with one another, just as we see Jesus speaking, praying here to his Father, and yet they are one. There exists between them perfect love and fellowship and community and unity. And Christ's words here express worshipful thanks for his Father's wisdom in originating and orchestrating the plan of redemption that is the only hope of sinful men. Remember, just a few, a few verses before, Jesus was pronouncing judgment on towns that had rejected him, that had rejected his gospel, and yet here he rejoices in his Father's sovereign goodness to save. 
Likewise, brothers and sisters, we, we would mourn over sin and impending judgment for those who reject the Christ. And yet at the same time, we too in Christ rejoice for what he has done and is doing to bring sinners near. There is not one of us that sits here under the sound of my voice because we in our own humanness chose to be here. If we are left to our own devices, if we are left to ourselves, all of us would seek our own. We would seek self We would seek to be masters of our own destiny. We would seek to accomplish that which we desire above all else. Again, Romans 3 makes it even clear. There is none who seeks God. No, not one. No, brothers and sisters, we are here today and we can be thankful that God is the one who seeks sinners who would never seek Him. God is the one who saves people who cannot save themselves. And indeed, that takes me to my second point, the pleasure of the divine plan. The pleasure of the divine plan. Jesus, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now look at the second part of verse 21 there. That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, what are these things? These things refer to the teachings of the kingdom or the gospel of Christ. Jesus is here praising God for the way he has manifested the plan of redemption among men. God intentionally hid the gospel from the wise and the understanding. The wise and the understanding refers to those who are wise and intelligent in worldly or earthly terms. They are the ones who claim to know much, but their knowledge is framed and tainted by human presuppositions and human sinfulness. These are, these are, this is what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 20, when he says, for his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, meaning sinful humanity, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Those are the wise and the understanding according to this world. Those are the enlightened according to this world. But God, brothers and sisters, does not cast his pearls before swine. He has hidden the truths of salvation from the proud and revealed them to his little children. In other words, to those whom he causes to be born again, to those who acknowledge their own helplessness by the power of his spirit. You see, those who are full of themselves have no room for God in their hearts, nor any capacity to glorify him. But those who are humble of heart and poor in spirit as a result of God's work in them, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. That is even one of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. 
As one commentator said, the contrast between wise and understanding and children is not between the knowledgeable and the ignorant, the educated and the uneducated, or the brilliant and the simple-minded. It is a contrast between those who think they can save themselves by their own human wisdom, resources, and achievements, and those who know they cannot. It's a comparison between those who rely on themselves and those who are brought to rely upon God. This is why Paul wrote on the same subject in 1 Corinthians 1, right? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let us not forget, brothers and sisters, that God's first and ultimate love is his own glory. And I know that strikes some of you wrong. I mean, doesn't that make God sound kind of like a narcissist to say God loves his own glory? And No, that's not the case. Think about it in the biblical way. For God to love anything more than his own glory would be idolatry for God. For God to put anything else before his own glory would be idolatry on his part. He created us that we might know the joy of joining him and glorifying himself. And when sin ruined that purpose in us, he sent his son Jesus to redeem us unto that purpose of glorifying him again. When man in his stubborn sinfulness glories in himself and his own accomplishments, God is defamed. And such defamation incur incurs God's wrath and judgment because God will not suffer long men who boast in themselves. But God is well pleased to glorify himself in the salvation of sinners. Christ affirms in verse 21 what we see all through the Bible about grace. Just as God is glorified in the punishment of the wicked, He is likewise glorified in the salvation of sinners. More specifically, as Jesus says here, God delights to both conceal and reveal His salvation according to His sovereign desire. That is His gracious will. And, and that really brings us to the point of this, right? The difficulty we often have with this biblical teaching regards God hiding or concealing salvation from any man why would God hide or conceal salvation from anyone why would he do that well the answer goes back to the biblical truths that we explored both in Romans and in the life of David and that simple truth is this God does not owe anyone salvation God does not owe salvation to anyone and that's a hard truth, but it is a truth. If we say that God does owe salvation to everyone, then we necessarily make God unjust. We say that God is being sinful to conceal it from anyone. But God is not unjust. He has a perfect purpose in everything. Romans 9, beginning of verse 13 as it is written, God said, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, we may not understand why God in his graciousness chooses some but not others. But we cannot allow our human sensibilities and lack of understanding to take precedence over the clear teaching of Scripture. If we want a God who is only just, then we need to understand God would be perfectly holy and just to condemn every single sinner to hell. Every single one of us without exception. If we want justice, that is justice alone. But God is not only just, He is just, and perfectly so, He is also gracious. And He determined in His sovereignty, as the only being in the universe that truly has a free will, God determined, as a matter of the exercise of His own will, to save many for the glory of His name, Jesus, here in this text in Luke 10, he proclaimed the judgment of the hardened in the towns that rejected him. And at the same time as God incarnate, he also delighted in the plan of the Godhead to save some. And I would remind us, brothers and sisters, that this too is our source of joy, our comfort. What we should celebrate is this truth of God's sovereignty. It is that truth of His sovereignty that sees us through the darkest nights of our being. There are many of us here, probably virtually all of us, who have been through some intense and difficult period in our lives. There are some of you sitting here in the sound of my voice that are going through one of those even now. Do you understand, precious child, that God is sovereign over every day of your existence? Every one of the days of your life was written in his book before there was one of them. Where you are is not an accident. Where you are at is not a detour somehow that that popped up on, on God's road along the way. It may not have been what you intended, but it is unquestionably what God has ordained. And that doctrine of his sovereignty is not meant to crush you, it is meant to encourage you and comfort you, that you have a heavenly Father that is laboring through your present circumstances to draw you nearer to himself and to conform you more to the person of his Son. And that God is there as your comfort, he is there as your peace, he is there as your rest, and that is ultimately displayed for you through the person of Jesus Christ himself, the agent of your redemption. He came to secure you for himself. And it is by his grace you can know he will never release that which he has claimed as his own. That takes me to my third point. 
the depth of divine knowledge. Look at verse 22, the depth of divine knowledge. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In verse 22, Jesus continues by acknowledging the Father's sovereign purpose has resulted in His redemptive commission. What God the Father decreed in eternity past in the covenant of redemption has now been put into the hands of the Son to bring about at the perfect time. And so the primary subject being addressed here is the authority of Christ to reveal the Father and to accomplish that covenant of redemption. This is what Jesus again is going to pray later on in John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Christ has all authority to do this. And that word authority, it denotes a jurisdiction, a delegated privilege, or a capacity to rule or power. Christ's acknowledgement of his own authority here is significant. And as it says in, in verse 22 of our passage, that authority encompasses all things, and he has absolute authority over all things. In other words, there is nothing that exists outside the realm of Christ's rule. On the basis of his perfect love for and submission to the Father, God the Father has entrusted all of creation to his Son. And the purpose of that authority is to make God known. Because knowing him is the sum and substance of salvation. Jesus has come with this authority to accomplish the Father's plan of redemption. He has come with authority to judge the men of all the earth. And in this exercise of his authority, Jesus is revealing to the world what can only come through him, which is knowledge of God. That's what he says here. He says, you see, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. As two members of one triune being, there is a union and communion between God the Father and God the Son that is the essence of their relationship. Infinite, eternal, perfect knowledge of one another is natural for them in that relationship. But it is not natural for us as mankind, as sinful men. Only the Father knows the Son and only the Son knows the Father. For anyone else to share in this knowledge requires divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. But that revelation is not our right. It is a matter of divine choice. Let me say that again. The revelation of that knowledge is not our right. It is a matter of divine choice. God must choose to reveal himself to us. But that is the good news, isn't it? The good news is that God has chosen to reveal himself through Christ. Jesus says so there at the end of verse 22, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That phrase is the shining culmination of this passage, for it encapsulates the ground and end of salvation. Jesus is the one who has come as the ultimate revelation of God to men. He has perfectly manifested the glory of God in our midst. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And there again, all through there is is that doctrine that we call the Trinity. That Jesus is God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. If, If you think of God, it is right to think of Christ because Christ is God. And yet we have Christ sitting down at the right hand of the Father. How is it that they're separate and yet one? That, brothers and sisters, is the mystery of the Trinity. One being, three persons, a holy God who brings about and secures our salvation. And all those to whom the Son wills to reveal Himself, they shall be saved. Again, it is inescapable that the idea of election permeates this passage. The certainty of salvation for men from every tribe, tongue, and people rests in God's divine hand. The names written in the Lamb's book of life were inscribed there before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8. And their salvation will come as Christ wills to reveal himself to them. This is why Jesus could speak with such certainty in John 6. In John 6.37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Jesus will accomplish the salvation of his people. Martin Luther, reflecting on this passage, said, Here the bottom falls out of all merit, all powers and abilities of reason, or the free will men dream of, and it all counts nothing before God. Christ must do and must give everything. I hope, brothers and sisters, that this would would be received by your hearts the way it is meant to be received with rejoicing. To know that our God is faithful. That He doesn't just create the possibility of salvation that we somehow down the road have the choice to opt in of or opt out of. But a God who sovereignly from eternity past has set His affections upon His people and will most certainly without exception accomplish their Redemption. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, because that is the doctrine of grace. A people who deserved only wrath and punishment receiving the grace and the forgiveness and the salvation of God, which they could never merit or earn, but that could only be given as a divine gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. That takes us to the fourth and final point that we see in this text, the marvel of this divine doctrine. The marvel of this divine doctrine. 
Picking up at verse 23, then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus had been praying to his Father publicly as part of the celebration of the ministry of the 72 disciples who had returned. But then he turned to them privately to help them capture the significance of the moment. He wanted them to see and to understand, listen, you are the first humans in history to see with your own eyes, to hear with your own ears the fulfillment of God's promise. God's promise of a deliverer, God's promise of the Messiah is here. All through history, from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David to Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to Micah, all of them longed for the day when God's anointed one would arrive to bring salvation. And these men, these men were now privileged to be eyewitnesses of his majesty. They were seeing the inauguration of the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. They were the disciples of the suffering servant promised in Isaiah 53. And even as we hear Jesus' words to them, we should have no less wonder when we consider the sovereignty of God in pouring out his grace in the covenant of redemption. As it says in 1 Peter 1.12, these are the things into which angels long to look. And yet, brothers and sisters, here they are given to us freely that we may not only know them and understand them, but benefit from them as we are made one with Christ. So what is the practical significance of these things for us today? These truths remind us that God's sovereign purpose will always prevail. God is building a heavenly kingdom. Regardless of how nations rise and fall, regardless of what freedoms exist or are taken away, we must be confident in the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ will never be held captive. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is wielded by the divine person of the Spirit himself. God will always prevail. As it says in Isaiah 40, the might of nations is nothing more than dust on the scales compared to the power of God. Secondly, we have this specific assurance that Christ will accomplish his good pleasure of redemption in all those who have been given to him by the Father. His purpose cannot be hindered or thwarted by the evil of men. Listen again to what Jesus says in John 10. Beginning of verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Christ will accomplish his good purpose of redemption. This is why we go forward boldly in evangelism and missions. Because we know God has already set his affections upon a people. And he sends us in obedience to his word to preach his gospel to all people everywhere. Knowing that in that general call of the gospel, he will effectually draw men and women to himself and make them his own in salvation. 
And that's really the third point I would have us remember. We go forth in our witness with the confidence that God will use us as his vessels in this endeavor. We are the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As his people, we should seek and pray for the salvation of all men. We should pray for revival in our churches and spiritual awakening in our nation. You know, all the time we talk about, is this the time when America is going to be judged? Is is this a time when judgment is being poured out? Listen, I think we're in a Romans 1 world. We are already being turned over. We are already being turned over, brothers and sisters. We are in the last days, and we have been for 2,000 years. And if America is to be judged... It's not because of the indifference of a godless culture. The godless can do no other. If America is to be judged, it's because of the indifference of a comfortable church. Let us, therefore, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, labor and strive for the salvation of men. Let us pray to and seek the Savior who will accomplish His good purpose. And let us do so out of love, knowing that we are not saved nor kept by any merit in us, but wholly by the merits of Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him and see how He accomplishes the glory of His name. Amen.